This is KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls. Well, hello and welcome to the Marshall Public Library's Radio Hour. My name is Greg Grasso and I'm at the studio of KISU 91.1 FM. Along with my co-host, Ann Mercaldo, we're broadcasting from the campus of Idaho State University in Pocatello, Idaho. Well, today we're speaking with acclaimed author Ridley Pearson. Ridley is the number one nationally best-selling author of more than 25 crime fiction novels that have been translated into 22 languages in 70 countries. His crime suspense novels are known for memorable characters, crisp plotting and detailed research, and strive to be good page-turners. Ridley has named this literary category aerobic fiction, adding, you lose weight while reading. I love that. Uh, Ridley currently lives in St. Louis, Missouri, with his wife, Marcel, and their two daughters. Good day to you, Ridley. Thank you for joining us. Good day to you, Greg and Ann. Uh, well, folks, we had a little bit of talk time before the uh, before the start of this, so uh, we're we're connected already. Well, I want to start out with a quote uh, from uh, from a website that I uh, was browsing through this morning. It says, "The more people drink, the better we sound." <laughs> so, 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 Ridley, before we get into some questions about your novels, I have to ask. I don't know how many of our listeners know about the rock and roll band you play in, the Rock Bottom Remainers. You play with Dave Barry, Amy Tan, Greg Isles, Stephen King. How the heck did you ever get that gig together? Where did you? Where did that name come from? And tell us about who makes up the group. Just for the record, I'm a teetotaler. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and that's the truth. So it's not how much I drink, it's how much you drink. Um, so we, uh, when, when you uh, get lucky enough to have some books sell, they put you out on book tours. And when you arrive in these cities, you have no, no way to know where you're going. And as you guys know, being at a radio studio right now, radio studios and many major newspapers are either very hard to find or are in the worst part of town. And so they assign people to drive you around those towns. And over the years, you get driven by the same person when you're in the same town. In other words, you've got one escort in Seattle and a different person in San Francisco. And in this case, the person who drove authors around in San Francisco and had for 10 years was a musician herself, a woman named Kathy Goldmark. And she, at the end of your long book days, would often take you to one of her gigs and you'd sit in with her band or do something. And over the years, she had identified a string of authors that could also somewhat play music. And I want to put somewhat in quotes. And um, I happened to be recruited back in 1991 to volunteer my time to go play music to raise money for a nonprofit by Kathy, who said she was putting an all-authors band together. And a couple weeks later, I got the call, and, and she said, so... Here's who's in the band. Now, mind you, I'd had one, you know, moderately successful bestseller at this point. And she said, you're in a band with Stephen King, Amy Tan, Barbara Kingsolver, Dave Barry, Al Cooper, and you. 
and I about <laughs> fell out of my chair. So I play bass in this band and have now for 20 years. We've never gotten one bit better. We are the worst rock band you have ever heard. <laughs> we play 50s and 60s rock and roll, and Roy Blunt Jr., who's been in the band since the beginning, has, you know, how there's like... Uh, Easy, easy listening and mood music and jazz. Well, Roy has defined our category as hard listening. No. <laughs> and that's it, because we are hard to listen to, ladies and gentlemen. But over the last 20 years, we, we kept this band together, and we've raised over $2 million for nonprofits, and we've all become friends. Oh, that's... So it's really been a terrific thing, including... Uh, Dave Barry and I have become really close friends, and we write books together, and we're going to be at your Provo library here in, in not too long a time. Really? Get yeah, honest. we're going to be there August 18th. We're going to be at the Provo library at 7 p.m. Oh, wow. No I'm going to write that all down. No way. Far out. What, when and is we're, it? Talking, we're talking about our new book, Bridge to Neverland, which came out yesterday. Oh, great. Yeah, so thanks for sending us that advanced copy, by the way. Oh, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get one either, Greg, but I'm hoping they're in the stores. No, it's actually, it's actually a beautiful book. I did get one, and the cover is gorgeous. So. Amazing. One question I had, Ridley, with the band members of the Rock Bottom Remainders. I've seen on YouTube um, Steve Martin sing, or he, he doesn't sing. He plays the banjo. Is he going to become a member of your group? <laughs> no, but he's a, he's a dear friend of Dave Barry's. Okay. And, um, and Steve wants, well, I, I think, yeah, the, the, we all attended the uh, Los Angeles Book Festival, and Steve moderated an interview with the Rock Bottom Remainders, which oh, okay. was an hilarious 90-minute escapade <laughs> that was basically Dave and Steve riffing off each other. But at the end of it, one, one of the members of our band, um, one of the part-time members, is Roger McGuinn of the Birds. And uh, so in the middle of our sets, Roger comes up and plays five songs, and he was there with us in L.A. that time. And That's right. So at the end of the night, Roger, Steve, Dave, and I played a couple songs together and it was really really fun well you really look like you enjoy it you know every single yeah. <laughs> every single little blip that i've seen on youtube it is just like you're having a ball yeah well it's hard not to have fun when that group of characters is up there i mean you know there's nothing uh that gives me goosebumps faster than playing that opening bass line um, in Turn, 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 and turning around and realizing I'm about to sing harmony with Roger McGuinn. I mean, you know, I, I really don't want this to happen, but if anybody wants to shoot me, that's the time. So you, you guys don't practice? You, you must have heard the band. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, we don't. We don't. We uh We'd like to practice, but that would involve knowing something about music, and, and we don't know anything about music. So right. We just get up there and fake it. Oh, man. Well, I, I listened to one of your interviews also on, on YouTube, and you were talking about um, writing being such a solitary uh, endeavor. But playing with the Rock Bottom Remainders, it, that's a very social, very emotional experience. Can you tell us what you feel then when you come out on stage? Well, I, I can tell you the first time I walked into the studio, 
where we were going to rehearse. Al Cooper, who brought, who was the first guy to put a rock band behind Bob Dylan, right? Um, he was going to be our mentor, and I, I walked into this, you know, L.A. studio. Well, actually, I mean, it was. I, I walked in. It was a hotel lobby, and there's Stephen King and Amy Tan and everyone else, and and it's just, uh, it was a goosebump moment. Um, and it, that feeling has never stopped. Now the band is sometimes Steven, but Mitch Album, Greg Isles, uh, Roy Blunt Jr., Matt Groening, Dave, Amy, me. Uh, it, uh, it's just, you know, there's never a moment that I'm with these people, and they've all become close friends, over, as you can imagine, over 20 years, sure. that I just don't think I'm in the luckiest, most amazing place on earth to count <laughs> these guys my friends. <laughs> That's... Uh, it's incredible. Uh, it's got to be. It's got to be. Well, okay, Ridley. Let's let's shift gears a little bit. I want to. Um, Ert. Ert is right. Ert is right. I'm gonna. Um, I've got a. Uh, I've got an outtake from uh, from uh, one of your uh, one of my f- most f- favorite novels. Um, Despite the three full facelifts. Marty Boatwright's neck flesh flapped like a loofing sail as he dialed out on his mobile phone. A tall man with flinty eyes and a cleft chin. He'd been mistaken for a Douglas most of his adult life. First Kurt, and then Michael. <laughs> now, that is from In Harm's Way. That is. Um, you know, I, I got to tell you, you, you write the way I think. You write... You poor man. <laughs> I know, I know. Like I said, I'm a dumb Italian with a little bit of Polish in me, but I got to see in pictures. So when your writing helps me build pictures, man, is that intentional or is that just your style? No, that's, I mean, that's certainly how I write, Greg. I, you know, I, um, I kind of stare, I'm, my, my wife can't stand it half the time because I just stare off into space, but um, I kind of stare off into space and imagine a scene um, and I, of course, I imagine it many, many, many times, and then I sit down and try to describe it to you. Yeah. So a lot of it's visual or, or um, you know, demanding of the senses because I smell things, I touch them, I feel them, and I just try to bring, you know, I mean, it, it sounds so snobby, but I try to bring my vision to your head. Mm-hmm. And if I get anywhere near there, then you're having as much fun as I'm having, and we all have a good time. Well, you 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 nailed it because, like I said, I'm not. Uh, I was never really a uh, a fiction reader uh, in my right. early years. I, I, That's I like, because you're male. Yeah, I'm male, uh, Italian. Uh, you know, uh, boom, boom, boom. You know, what do we got to do? You know, you know, my head, my head works like that. So I, I really appreciate authors like you and, you know, even David Baldacci uh, writes similarly. I mean, I, I love both of your works. You, you guys well, really thanks. do a good job. Well, I try to, I try to write to be entertaining and to keep the story moving and to give you characters you want because that's what I like to read. You know, I, I'll leave the literary prizes to other people. <laughs> well, part of my job at the, at the library, Ridley, is to recommend authors to patrons who have read everybody that they know of, or can you give me somebody new? And I always can I send you a ham. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like to plug local and regional authors. And even though you don't live in Haley anymore, you're living in St. Louis, I still consider you a regional author. And, and what could be better than a fast-paced mystery taking place in your own backyard, so to speak? 
So with yeah. that, Ridley, tell us about your Sheriff Fleming series that takes place in and around Sun Valley. Well, I started a series um, based on a guy I know whose name is Walt Semling. And for 30 years almost, Walt was the sheriff of Blaine County, which is the size of Rhode Island, um, right in the center of Idaho. Mm -hmm. And Blaine County is really, uh, for those who don't know it, is an interesting, unique place. It, it does house Sun Valley, and it, it's a county that has everything from sheep farms and hops farms and, um, you know, alfalfa farms to billionaires up in Sun Valley. And mm -hmm. I thought that, at first, I thought, you know, oh, there might be a book here. But as I, I looked over, I've lived there. I still have a house there. And I've, you know, lived in that area, Haley, Idaho, for, for over 30 years now. And there are just so many, uh, there's conferences and there's the environment and there's the local politics and there's the sort of town-gown mentality of who are these rich people who came in and jacked up our real estate prices and made it so I can't live here anymore. And there just seems so many topics and ideas in that area. Uh, and Walt, whom I know, is such a sort of bigger-than-life, um, heroic kind of character that I thought, man, you know, I mean, how you don't need to invent much to make fun fun stories here. So that's that's really how those thrillers came about. And three of them have the name Killer in them, Killer Weekend and Killer View, Killer Summer, mm -hmm. and one is In Harm's Way. Uh, and they, you know, they've just been a blast for me because I can, I can talk to Walt, I can get ideas for a story. Like there's a, there's a business conference called the Allen Conference that meets every year, and that formed the basis for one of the books, the Idaho Nuclear Laboratory formed the mm -hmm. basis for one of the books. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of real-life fact. And, and that really brings me to the fact that in my fiction, I like to use as much fact as I can, because my job is to suspend your disbelief. Mm -hmm. And if, if I make it all up, which sometimes I do, Dave Barry and I make up everything for our Peter and the Starcatcher series, but... In my crime fiction, I try to base it off of a lot of interviews I do, a lot of research I do, so that I'm really reporting more fact than fiction, and, and therefore it should be easier for me to suspend your disbelief. Um, so that's kind of where I come from, and, and basing things in central Idaho has just been a blast because I know so many of the facts. That's right. That's right. And I, I think I've read, with the exclusion of your um, Wendell McCall um, series, I've read um, all the adult mysteries that you've written, but I think the one that really caught my breath the most was The Pied Piper. Oh, and, great. I loved that book. And you know, it, it, for, for those of you in our listening audience who haven't read uh, The Pied Piper, but it's about um, someone kidnapping infants and toddlers right out of their homes. And um, it's every parent's nightmare, you know, something like it that is. would happen. How did you come up with that storyline, Ridley? And how much research did you have to do to come up with those intricate twists that you had in the story? Well, I became a parent, and that you know, always gets your mind thinking because you basically want a, I mean, my daughter's 14 and 12 now, and I want chains on both of them. <laughs> um, you, you know, you never want these kids far out of your sight. And in doing some research for the book, I found out that you could, there were black markets um, in North America where you could buy a blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl 
for $50,000. And I said, you have got to be kidding me. And I I looked into this with the FBI, and 18, at that time, which was the early 90s, 18,000, 88,000 kids went missing every year. Oh, gosh. And all were accounted for except the small number, 18,000. And you know, how many do, how many of those do we hear about? Two that make the press, you know, in a big way. Yeah. And, and so I just went, Oh my gosh. And, Mm -hmm. and I found there are, you know, baby markets overseas and it's just, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's a human market and it terrified me. And I thought I want the, the Bolt novels, which is what you're talking about, a series Mm -hmm. of novels I wrote set in Seattle that feature the detective Sergeant Lou Bolt are generally written about social issues. Mm-hmm. I tried to find some kind of underlying social issue that terrified me or concerned me and then find a way to spin some sort of thriller about it. And Pied Piper is one of those. Another is Beyond Recognition, which is another sort of entry point to my fiction. I, I suggest to people when they say, you know, what book should I start with? I say either Pied Piper or Beyond Recognition, because I think both of those kind of let you into that series. Although you're into the middle of the series, they let you into it in a way that then makes that series accessible for you. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned um, uh, the FBI. Um, do, you, do you look at actual cases? Do, do those actual cases um, uh, help uh, conjure up the character? Or, or do, you, do, you, do you get into those files, you know, the real files, the real stuff, the bad stuff? Yes, I mean, it's both ways. I, uh, especially for the Bolt series, I um, worked with FBI agents. I worked with police. I, one of the most fascinating guys I worked with was a forensic psychiatrist. And I would take him, you know, based on various research or newspaper articles or something, I, I would take him the crimes that my villain was committing. Oh. And this was a guy who had interviewed 140 convicted felons, murderers. And um, for you know to be an expert witness in court, and I would say, okay, here's what my guy is doing or has done in the past three or four years. What got him to this moment? And this guy would take a couple weeks, and then he'd call up and say, "I'm ready for you." And I would fly over to Seattle from Idaho and sit down at dinner with him, and he would tell me this guy's life that had led up to the moment of these crimes. So you know there were. There were really fun, interesting, hands-on people that I could talk to mm-hmm. and, and hopefully really bring these ideas to life, not just sort of invent them. Right, right. Wow. <laughs> to, to switch gears just a little bit again, Ridley, to talk about your, your young adult and children's steer, series, um, how did your association with Dayberry come about? We met in jail together. <laughs> um, <laughs> we... We actually met in the Rock Bottom Remainders back oh. in 1992, okay. and uh, he, we had never met. None of the Rock Bottom Remainders had ever met before that first um, performance we did, and, well, a series of rehearsals leading up to it. Yes, Greg, we did rehearse. Um, <laughs> and there were some very funny moments along the road, and, and Dave and I just became connected and became friends, and our family started vacationing together, and one thing led to another, and several years, maybe five, seven, eight years went by, and one day my then five-year-old daughter asked me how 
Peter Pan had met Captain Hook. And I went, oh, my gosh. Holy mackerel. Um, you know, how, how can Peter Pan fly? Why does he never grow old? Where did Tinkerbell come from? I mean, there were just umpteen zillion little pieces of a story that turned a boy into Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. And, and I saw a prequel. I thought, wow, there's a prequel to Peter Pan about how did a boy become Peter Pan. And in, during one of these performances, I was down in Miami staying with Dave because we'd become friends. And I mentioned this to him, and his eyes kind of went wide. And I said, you know, at that time, I was only writing adult fiction. And I said, dude, I kill people for a living, and, and you write booger jokes for a living. <laughs> you know, What if we could combine those talents? And we could write funny but suspenseful fiction for kids and write a story about how a boy became Peter Pan. And he said, I'm in. And we decided we would collaborate on what became Peter and the Star Catchers. And to our surprise, it went on to the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for almost a year. And we had this big hit series. And now we've written 12 or 14 books together. Yeah, and that... that of course, I'm a, like I said, I can't grasp all this, but um, I'm trying to visualize you and Barry writing at the same time. Okay, you live you live elsewhere. Are you knocking out stuff and sending it to him and say, "Hey, what do you think?" Add your stuff, or do you guys like, write and then you cumulate it together? I mean, how's that yeah, work? I, well, I introduced Dave to a word he had to look up in Webster's dictionary. Outlining. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and he'd never even looked at an outline. So uh, we sat down for about a week and outlined every chapter of Peter and the Star Catchers. So we knew exactly where it was going, how it was going to get there, what was going to happen to the characters, what their emotional arcs were going to be. We laid all that out. And then we decided rather than say, you take chapter one and I'll take chapter two, which when you read those kind of collaborative efforts, they're very obvious and they bug me. Because you can tell, oh, that's a Dave Berry chapter. That's a Ridley Pearson chapter. Hmm. Um, so we decided we would divide our work by character. One of us would take the psychologically uh, bizarre and piratical-like characters. You. And that would be me. <laughs> and one of us would take the child-like happy-go-lucky characters. And that would be Dave. Yeah. So if chapter five was mostly, and every chapter had both characters, sets of characters in it, but if it was predominantly the kid, then Dave would write a first draft and send it to me. And, and the, the unique thing about our friendship and our trust was I could do whatever I wanted to that. I could throw it out and start it all over. I could just barely copy edit. I could cut it up. I, whatever I wanted to do and send it back to him. He would do the same. Send it back to me. I would do the same. Send it back to him. And we went back and forth on these things six, eight, ten times until we both said uncle this is as good as we're going to get it. And then we'd look at the next chapter, and if it was mostly the pirates, I would write the first draft. So sometimes I wrote three chapters in a row. Sometimes Dave wrote six chapters in a row. But we both edited the heck out of the other guy, and we still do, yeah. looking for this third voice. that isn't. It, it Really, we go back and look at these books now, and we can't tell who wrote what. Because in the pirate chapters, the dialogue's funny, and that's because Dave got his hands on it and rewrote it. Or in the kids' chapters, it gets really tense and serious, and that's because I got in there and put some suspense in it. So, I mean, you know, we, hopefully the reader can't tell. Hopefully to the reader, 
it feels like an author, and that's what we wanted to do. What do your your daughters think, Ridley, of your fame? Oh, they moved out years ago. <laughs> <laughs> They're what are they six and two? <laughs> right. See you, Dad. We're leaving. Holes <laughs> over the back, you know, the little handkerchief tied up with some candy. On it. I love so, it. Um, they have fun. I mean, my uh, my eldest daughter, Paige. My poor daughters are named Paige and Story, and I'm a writer. Um, but Paige uh, reads is the first to read all my young younger audience books um, ahead of anybody. And Story has now picked them up and is reading them as well. So it's a, it's a family effort. My wife reads the second, you know, is the second person to read them all. Um, and you know what? It isn't so much that Paige will say, oh, I don't think it's working in Chapter 13, Dad, but I'll watch how she reads it, and if she puts the book down and doesn't pick it back up 20 minutes later, um, I know something's wrong, and I go in and look where she is, and I go, ah, it's Chapter 13. Mm. Um, So, I mean, you know, they're really an active part of this, and of course I base, and so does Dave base, a lot of characters off of our kids, you know, because that's who we know, that's whom we're familiar with, so... Um, it's really fun that way. I mean, there are pieces of my girls and all the characters. There's pieces of Sophie and Dave's older son, Rob. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a group effort. Well, that's good. I, I, I did an interview um, a while back with C.J. Box, and I asked him the same question. And he's got twin daughters, and I think they're in their early 20s now. But they would really sock it to him if he got their their um, um, comments wrong or he didn't he wasn't writing like a teenager like because he there's a there's kids in the in his Joe Pickett series also and so that it's a family effort there too so I'm really glad to hear that yours is a family effort also yeah you know and you touched on something there because one of the things that Dave and I don't do is try to write to a younger audience mm-hmm. there uh, we think that's a really big mistake because we have kids and we know they will sniff that out and throw right. the book. Oh, they're around. a heck of a lot smarter than we ever were. Oh, um, my gosh. So, you know, we try to write books that we would like to read. You know, the difference between my adult crime novels and these books is my adult crime novels are more R-rated, and these books are, are G or PG. Right. Mm-hmm. But other than that, we try to pack in the suspense, pack in the character work, and not pull any punches because kids just don't put up with it. They'll just launch the book and say... What a piece of junk, you yeah. know. So just had so much fun with all of those theories. And um, there's just nothing like writing for young kids, you know, and, and even older kids. I mean, as we say, our books are, uh, Disney's track these Disney books, and they're read by adults equally as much as kids. And we say our books are, are available for kids from 8 to 80. That's good. Um, That's very good. But it's, it's really, really fun. We go to these signings, and the kids are all dressed up in costumes, as are we. And uh, <laughs> uh, we joke around, and we're nuts. And as I say, we're going to do this in Provo on the 18th um, at 7 p.m. at the Provo Library. And we're just we're silly, and we read from our books, and we just have a great time. Great. Well, I'm speaking about um, uh, writing and reading. Um, Ridley, do you have a favorite author? I mean, uh, uh this will probably be the last question, but, um, yeah, who do you like to read? Uh, who was kind of a hero to you? Um, well, those are sort of two different questions. I yeah, mean, they are. <laughs> in the mystery world, John D. MacDonald was a big hero to me. Hmm. Um, I just loved his work. And, and, uh, and James Crumley, I read one of his books, and that's probably what tipped me into 
into writing. Hmm. Um, but in the in the kids' world, there was. A, you know, when I was very, very little, there were a set of illustrated books called Harold and the Purple Crayon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as you'll recall, maybe, if you're my age. Totally. Um, Harold, I think I'm probably still around. Those are great books. But Harold would draw something on his wall, and it would become real. Correct. And he would just step into his own drawing. Yes. And that had a huge impact on me. Uh, I think it opened up my creative valves and made me realize really that anything I thought could become real. And that's what you do as a writer. You know, you, you open up your imagination and hopefully you've got one and you pour it out onto paper. So I think in a lot of ways, as odd as it sounds, that funny little book, um, Harold and the Purple Crown, probably opened up my imagination. And there was a book that they've made some movies of it that don't do a credit, although they're funny, but there was a book called Cheaper by the Dozen. Sure. Hmm. Sure. And cheaper by the dozen turned me into a type A personality, and I'll never forgive the author. <laughs> because in that book, the, the hero would do things. I, I distinctly remember at one point, he timed himself buttoning his shirt down and then buttoning his shirt up <laughs> to see which was faster. And that's the kind of thing I still do in my life. Uh, I'm just ridiculously type A, and I blame that book. And if, if the author is still alive, look out, because I'm going to sue you. <laughs> oh, on that note, <laughs> Ridley, um, I want to thank you for joining us today. I, I want to send out a special thanks to KISU station manager Jerry Miller and his staff manager, Jamin Anderson. Uh, every week they uh, they help us put a uh, really good program together on behalf of the marshall public library this is greg grasso and ann mercado uh thanking author ridley pearson for spending time with us today you can find ridley's novels on the web in many bookstores throughout the country and of course the marshall public library ridley thank you so much sir thank you i get out there often so i will see you it's Um, been a real joy ridley thank you so much